she was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I am here again this week with my friend Darren Callahan. Hi, Darren. Hello. Darren was with us last week. He brought us a fabulous episode about screenwriter Nancy Dowd. And he also happens to be, if his name is familiar to you, the composer for our theme music on Broads You Should Know. So uh, it's very exciting to have him back. Darren is also a brilliant writer, a playwright and screenwriter, in addition to being a musician, composer, and rock star. You can read more about him on our website, of course. We're going to have his bio and picture up there and links to all of his music and stuff on Spotify. But Darren, for the audience who didn't meet you last week, I have a question for you. Who is your favorite broad? And if you can't pick your very favorite, because we know that that's a hard question, you can give me like the top three. And it could be like the broad of the moment, just whatever pops in your head. Um, Okay, this is a tough question for me because you just sprung it on me. So I'm probably going to name somebody. And then like 10 minutes from now, I'm going, no, it's Hedley Lamar. You know, uh, Hedley Lamar. It's going to be- We've done an episode on Hedy. We love her here. Yeah. That's uh, amazing. Uh, And I also don't know, should I be putting household names out there or should I name somebody I know? It's just to you. Who is like your personal favorite broad? You can know them or they can be like a hero celebrity type historical figure. It doesn't, you can't really give a wrong answer. Well, one comes to mind, but you already have a podcast about Kate Bush and I'm a giant Kate Bush fan. Oh yeah, Adrian did an episode on her a few weeks ago. That was a great episode. Yeah, I love I love Kate and uh, have for for many decades. I love the fact that she produces her own records. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talented uh, people. I love Charlie XCX, for example. That's a amazing broad. I love what she's all about in her career um, with really pushing the bounds of pop and hyper pop. But Charlie, you know, relies on a lot of producers, and that's fine. That's totally cool. Yeah, but. Kate was right there behind the board, uh, getting the sound she wanted, picking the uh, instrument she wanted, and uh, ha- arranging everything. And as a producer, I know how hard that is, and also how great it is to feel the whole picture of an artist without the translator in between. So uh, that's, I think, why her- the experience of Kate Bush is a lot more pure. That's a great answer. That's much more detailed than most people, too, by the way. You're very detailed, Darren. I love it. Well, I try, I try. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back this week because I have a broad to share with you. And I'm not sure if you heard of her yet because she died fairly recently and kind of her most like famous event or revelation when, when her name was in the news was, well, I guess right after her death was, was really when she was most famous. So, so you may have seen a news story about her, that sort of thing. Have you heard of Marion Stokes? I haven't. I'm excited to hear this. Oh, man. Buckle your seatbelt because this story, first of all, I should give a special shout out to Joe Lex. He was one of our previous guests and he is a podcaster himself over on the East Coast in in, uh, Pennsylvania. And he is sending me great broads all the time. And this is one of the broads he sent me. And when I looked into her, I was like, oh man, we got to do an episode on Marion Stokes. So thank you, Joe. And listeners, if you didn't know, you can submit broads that you think we should cover. If you go on the website, there's a form or you can also always email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Anyway, let's dig right in to Marion Stokes. So Marion was born Marion Marguerite Butler 
on November 25th, 1929 in the Germantown part of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She graduated from Girls High in Philadelphia and she worked as a librarian for the Free Library of Philadelphia for about 20 years from like the 1940s to the 1960s. Uh, And in the late 1950s and early 60s, Marion became heavily involved in the local communist party. The, The people who were kind of running the party really saw her as a very prominent potential leader and they really had her kind of organizing and at a bunch of these events. And around the same time period, she married a man whose name was Melvin Metalitz, uh, who was a teacher, and they end up having a baby together named Michael. Um, And Michael is heavily sourced in um, my research here because a lot of great quotes about her come from Michael. So So, uh, around this time period, she also became very involved in the civil rights movement. It is worth mentioning, uh, Marion is black. She's African-American. So she was very, very invested in the civil rights movement, and particularly in the movements to integrate Girard College was one she was involved in. What state was uh, Girard in? It's Philadelphia. It's a Philadelphia school. So like They're a local- integrating. Oh my gosh, yeah. Philadelphia. I, for- I forgot that Philadelphia wasn't really all that uh, integrated sometimes. I mean, 1960s, they're still like- there still was that going on, I think, all over the U.S. I don't think maybe there were pockets where it wasn't, but it was still pretty prominent. She also helped organize five buses from Philadelphia to the March on Washington in 1963. She was on the founding board of the National Organization for Women, also called NOW. And as she was growing more and more prominent with the Communist Party, she was chair of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a a national organization that was opposed to the boycott. Now, uh, just to give you a little, uh, since I'm a movie guy, Fair, that committee is referenced in, I think, the Oliver Stone JFK because really? I think it was infiltrated by um, the assassin of, of Kennedy uh, as sort of his spy work uh, early on. No way. So, so anyway, that's referenced Whoa. in the movie just briefly. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't actually dig into the re- the the history of the organization. And you know, it's Oliver Stone, so you could trust it completely. It's absolutely <laughs> accurate. hundred percent historically accurate. Exactly. Yeah. Um. At some point during all this activity, she does end up. Her and Melvin do end up splitting. They interview him. I was watching a documentary on her, which is also how I got some of this information for my research. And they actually interview Melvin, and they talk about their marriage. And Marion was a very forward-minded and intelligent smart woman and she was very verbose I, some people I'd say would say like opinionated but, but I think sometimes that's like a really I think that's kind of an offensive word like oh a woman who actually speaks her mind is she's so opinionated like oh my god I'm, so, I'm kind of tired of hearing that <laughs> yeah, Sarah already knows that I'm opinionated but what I get sometimes is uh, people think I'm really aggressive in my opinions you know uh, uh, hmm. and, and it's usually just about like some zoom lens so it's not it's not even like about anything with real high stakes but I often either get the feeling or I actually get the verbal cue back off a little because I cause I get so energized. People are like, that guy's really amped up about that whatever minutia thing that I was talking Man, about. Man, I love when I'm talking to people that are amped up about something. Like I feel that, that vibrancy and that energy. Put it on the table. Yeah, I love that. I wish more people kind of had that sort of commitment to their conversation and their opinions. So uh, anyway, so her and Melvin split. And after returning to Philadelphia, she takes a job as a panelist on a local news show called Input. And this show ran from 1967 to 1969. And I think it was like the local CBS network is the one that ran it. And... 
the show basically consisted of people kind of sitting around, these panelists sitting around and having very intense discussions about social issues of the time. And so they're talking about things like eugenics and like racism and racism in the community and white people's failure to recognize. So they like are, I think we have all these discussions today and because the issue is still so relevant, but I forget though that some people were trying back then. They were trying to have those conversations. It always makes me wonder like why people stopped trying so hard or why, how white people forgot. But yeah, well, that is mystifying to me as well. But you know, the idea of uh, enlightening people about a community and either it's, it's struggles that are unique or it's accomplishments that are, are theirs. That's the previous definition of woke. And I, what's wrong with being awake? I know people have turned this into a sort of a, a word to cleave each other with, but uh, the truth is you you do want to be aware yeah. if you're a thoughtful citizen and, and um, reasonable age of enlightenment type of cat. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to, why wouldn't you want to know things? So even things about the communist party, even if you don't like that's, Hey, that's not my politics to know it about it is not going to hurt. Yeah. And I watched a few of these clips. Like you can go and, and like view some of these old clips from input. And like one of the things they talk about is democracy versus communism and Marion yeah. is up there and she's not standing down like she's fair has not only does she quote opinionated but she asks you know like what we're you know she says something at one point like well when are you going to step up to the table because you're not and so and they're like well what about this and she's like yeah but it's not but democracy needs to change and to be better and when democracy gets better is when you know I'll think about getting behind democracy again <laughs> really is she, yeah. what she said and I, I was just really impressed to hear such an eloquent voice on it it was these clips are really cool i'm gonna put a couple of them i think on the website so that listeners you can go check them out too and you can also google them of course um so anyway the anchor of the show was named john stokes jr and my research didn't dig up too much about him other than he was a very wealthy man a white man as well and that him and marion hit it off really well and in some of the clips they're like talking together he's one of the he's the host so he's a part of these conversations and facilitating the conversations and eventually his own marriage dissolves or was in the process of dissolving and soon afterwards he and marion begin seeing each other and eventually they marry and they will remain married for the rest of their lives no. So um, the the documentary I was watching interviewed both their kids, her kid for, with Melvin, Michael, uh, as well as some of John's kids from his his previous marriage. And everyone kind of mutually agrees that like they really were a really good couple together. So they they found the right they found the right person, which I think I always love to read in stories. Yeah, I mean, love comes uh, along. You should grab it. And you know, by, by the way, they're on the coolest titled show I've heard from that time. Input. Right, Input. that was the name of the show. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's perfect. Yeah, perfect romantic setting. <laughs> and I didn't. So, so here we come into like the interesting, weird part of Marion's story. And I and I don't. I couldn't in my in the my research and in the uh, documentary. They didn't really talk about how it all started. But around seventy seven, Marion starts kind of filming the news, not filming, um, recording it on her VCR and her Betamax tapes. So she starts recording the news. And then in 1979, the Iranian hostage crisis happens. And in Tehran, there was a number of U.S. diplomats that were held hostage by the revolutionaries in Iran. Uh, and they were held hostage for 444 days. And it was this huge ordeal. Yeah. Now, this is 79 is before my time. I, I, I confess I wasn't born yet. I, I was around. Uh... 
I was tiny, but it was on the news all the time and uh, was a, an enormous story in the way that the insurrection or whatever is a big story. You know, it was just, yeah. it was everywhere. And it went on and on and on, 444 days, like they were there. And this was also like the very dawn of the 24-hour news cycle. And Marianne was determined to archive all of it. All of it. Wow. That's ambitious. And the, the documentary was interesting. It talked about how as she watched the Iranian hostage crisis happen, she would notice that the, the details of the stories would change. You know, as the, as the story continued day after day, month after month, she would see that now they're saying something different than they said on day three. And now they're saying something different than they said on this day. And because she had worked in television on input, she had like a very unique understanding of how the producer of the news can shape the news story and tell it differently and kind of change it a little bit. Uh, and she also knew or thought that that news stations weren't going to archive all these stories because they couldn't possibly keep track of it all with as much as they were running. And she felt like it was really important to archive these, partially just to track these changes and to be able to... It's like yesterday's version of keeping the receipts. is like, oh, you said this, but really... And there was some a little bit of rabbit hole stuff where she was thinking with the the hostage crisis, there was a lot of conspiracy going on. And I didn't dig into that part of the story. And I don't know more about that. Well, news has always been considered ephemera. And yeah. they sort of, in some ways, hope you forget what they wrote about the other day because they may have to retract something or they may need to emphasize something differently or they may have learned something. Yeah. So the idea of, of recording it and comparing contrast, you see that all the time now because everything is recorded. You can play what somebody said on Wednesday, some politician compared to what they said on two weeks yeah. later and be like, hey. So I, I appreciate the chutzpah there of doing it in the age of the analog world of VHS tape. Because they weren't doing it then. So Marion embarks on this archival journey and she started taping 24-7 news coverage of Fox, MSNBC, CNN, C-SPAN, CNBC, and she had up to eight separate VCRs stationed throughout her house. And the majority of her and her family's, you know, by proxy days were structured around paying attention to the tapes and switching the tapes out when the when the the tape had run out. And her son Michael said, quote, pretty much everything else took a backseat. It provided a certain rhythm to her life and a certain amount of deep conviction that this stuff was going to be useful, that somehow someone would find a way to index it, archive it, store it. So every six hours, a VHS tape at that time was about six hours long. So every six hours, the tapes would end and Marion and her husband would run around the house and switch them all out really fast. They would plan like all of their family outings around the length of VHS tapes. Man, that's love. So if they were dinner and it was running long, they would cut the meal short and to run home and <laughs> change the tape out. Oh, geez. And late at night, she would put a new six-hour tape into the recorder, and then she would wake up early the next day to change them. Or if she wasn't home, she would recruit family members to do it for her. Her son, Michael, also said she had this habit of watching two televisions at once, and she could pay attention to both at the same time. And then there were also, you know, all the televisions were on in other rooms. Sometimes they would have their noise off, but they were all recording different channels. And it was incredibly chaotic for everyone in her house and in her life, except for her, because this was like yeah. somehow her jam. <laughs> so, do you, you know, you may be talking about this later. 
I feel like this is sort of a, uh, an aviator type of thing. Like it might be some OCD where um, it just becomes a little bit obsessive to do it this. Most... How many, how, how long did you do this for? Well, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there, Darren. All right. All right. I'm in, <laughs> in suspense. I got to, I want to know the ending. And tapes aren't the only thing. It's not the only kind of strange thing about her. So she bought VHS tapes by the dozen and the stacks were so high all around their living space that they would fall over. When she got a little bit older, she had to have a, a help her do it for her when she was she wasn't so fast, you know, to switch the tapes out. But ultimately, her collection grew to about 71,000 VHS and Betamax tapes, some up to eight hours a piece. And they were stacked around her home and apartments. And she rented extra apartments just to store them. At one point closer to her late years, she had nine properties and three storage units filled with tapes and other stuff. (laughs) Good thing she was uh, wealthy. You know, that helps. Yeah, they had quite a bit of money. And and I think it's just worth saying she wasn't entirely crazy. The networks were at that time, the early at least in the early years, they were disposing of their news. They weren't like archiving everything in their records. You know, with the invention of computer and with storage and digital storage changed the game for a lot of the, the archiving systems everywhere. So if she hadn't taped them, some of them never would exist. But this VHS tape thing is not like her only obsession. In 1984, do you remember what happened in 1984? Well, um, there was an Apple TV commercial. Yes. <laughs> there was Apple that. launched the Macintosh computer. That's what I was going to say. Oh my gosh, I, I read your mind. You got it, dear. You got it, dear. <laughs> and she was like heavily obsessed with Macintosh computers from the very beginning and with Steve Jobs. And she would buy... Every version of the computer, she would buy computers for anyone she knew that was going off to college. She would just give them to like her staff members. She just bought tons and tons and tons of computers and Apple devices in general as they expanded. And she also bought stock right at the very beginning when it was $7 a share. And she also encouraged her in-laws, her wealthy family, to invest too. Uh, upon her death, much later, there, she had 192 computers in her possession. She like bought them but didn't open them. She kept them all unopened in a climate-controlled storage garage for posterity. Well, hear me out here. I think she was trying to drive up the stock. <laughs> Maybe, because I looked it up. Today, that $7 a share is worth 169.24 a share. Oh. And so she made herself and her family a lot a lot of money just with that stock investment advice. And I have to say here, shout out to my dad who also invested at Apple (laughs) right at the beginning. And everyone thought he was crazy and nobody believed in Apple at the beginning. And then the stocks did really well. So shout out to my dad. I don't think he invested as much as (laughs) Miriam. But he still benefited from from that for sure. And also, so in addition to these 192 computers, she also, for over half a century, she received half a dozen daily newspapers, 100 to 150 monthly periodicals, and bought 40 to 50,000 books. Now, I assume that no human on earth could consume all of this, so she must have either curated it or ignored it. I don't know. She, She was an avid reader. She did read a lot of it. Um, I don't know that she she read all of it. And in an interview with her son, he said that the family would often go to the bookstore and they'd purchase $800 worth of new books. I'm jealous. 
And she also collected toys and dollhouses. I mean, the, when you look up her name, one of the common words we see is hoarder. Like she really kept all of it. And she probably called herself a collector or an archivist. But really, like to the average person, like nine properties filled with stuff is a lot of property filled with stuff. I, this was really her obsession. This VHS tape thing really kind of ran her and her husband's life, it seems like, for, for the most part. And it's interesting to watch the kids, they, the, their kids that they interview in the, the documentary definitely were like they were obsessed and ha- trying to have relationships with them was strange and difficult. And they were kind of recluse and didn't leave very much. And um, well, you know, you know uh, putting aside any Howard Hughes type thing here, when I, you know, I was growing up during that era. And uh, man, everybody was obsessed with computers and VHS and the, the the news cycle expanding, and all these things were part of the culture. As just you know, in the same way MTV might have been, you know, there was a huge zeitgeist for these things. And I feel like if you were um, tuned into it and excited by it, it could consume your life in this way. I could see. Mm-hmm. It. I mean, it's just the amount of dedication to manually switch out a VHS tape on eight different TVs. Well, my parents 30- wondered why I sat there and watched MTV all day. So uh, you know, and, and for thirty five years to to base your whole life in your it's a, it's a bit much. It's a bit you know well, now we can schedule not my choice. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the ideal life for me. But that is, <laughs> I, I no judgment on on Mrs. Stokes. So it's okay. Oh no. I mean, I think people have their own things and they have their own things for various reasons that we may never quite know, but it's fascinating. Like her story certainly belongs in the weird tales of rich people and like what you can do when you don't have to like work at the library anymore and you can just film and watch the news all day. It's a very strange turn for a communist though, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, well, communism really took a turn for the worse in this country and she kind of shifted away from being as verbose about it I think none of my research really showed if you know her developments in that way but she also just didn't she also just wasn't very involved politically like after she marries John it seems like she gets into this videotaping and she this is this becomes her life right and she tapes she runs these tapes for 35 years until her death on December 14th 2012 at the age of 83 and she died of lung disease and according to her son, that was the first day in a long time that nobody changed the tapes. The okay. house was quiet and absent the usual flickering screens. And he said, quote, over time, I came to respect her project, but it wasn't my project. It did feel weird, but it felt oddly kind of like the apartments were peaceful in a way they hadn't been in a long time. What's even more not strange, but it made me pause when I get to this part of her story because do you remember December 14th, 2012? No, I don't. Is that a landmark of some sort? It is a landmark of some sort. That was the day of the Sandy Hook. Really? Sandy Hook Elementary, the shooting, that horrific shooting that Alec jo- Alex Jones is just on trial for right now, this week. Or he just, the trial just concluded. Last week, yeah. He'll be on trial again because I think he's got several cases against him, but yeah. And Marion died that day, so she didn't see that news cycle. Oh my gosh. And her son said, quote, I got to the house and this horrific news was going on. Kids being killed, teachers being killed while shielding children, that sort of thing. And I remember being very grateful that that wasn't the last news she saw. After she died, 
it took like a year and a half for her, her husband, John had already died um, years prior to that. I kind of skipped over that because he's not the broad. So she was kind of the, the last, you know, quote, adult or matriarch of the family. And then so all the kids had to kind of go through all the stuff these nine apartments and three storage units. And it took them about a year and a half, but they were able to to eBay and auction most of the collectibles, including all of the computers. They gave away most of the books to a charity for children. They kept having trouble though with the tapes. They have all these Betamax, all these VHS tapes. They're like, what do we do with these? And finally, Michael is able to get a hold of a guy named Roger McDonald. And he was is the director of the television archive at the Internet Archive. And this is like the digital archive. Literally, their website lives at archive.org. Like, that's how high up in the food chain they are. And Roger hears about all of these tapes, and he pretty much agrees right away. Oh my gosh, yes, we'll take those. And him and his team are going to digitize them. That's a big project. It is a huge project huge project it took several trucks for them to drive the tapes all the way from philadelphia to san francisco it costs like twelve thousand dollars to move these tapes across the country and bring them to san francisco where the archive is and one by one they'll be put into video players and they will be digitized which one of the articles said was almost as arduous as recording them in the first place probably so but one thing that was that her son noted was that fortunately Around the time she had started recording was also when closed captioning had begun. And the fact that the tapes have closed captioning will make it easier for the archivist to categorize and keyword the clips. And ultimately, it's going to be like a heavily searchable database where you could search for like Reagan, Watergate, you know, and, all, and the clips that say those words will appear for you to watch. And for free. Archive.org is a free, you don't have to pay. It's not a subscribe service like most right, archives yeah. are. It's going to take a really long time. They started all this in 2013. I went to archive.org to see what was happening there. And I had, they have all the clips from the input. That's where I watched all her input clips. And they're not done yet. It's just an incredible amount of content to convert. <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, I, again, a movie reference. There's a film called Day of the Dead from 1985. And seen it's, it. set, it's set in, you've seen it? Yeah. It's set in a bunker underneath uh, where all the records of humanity are. So it's set in these caves with all these banking records and receipts. And there's a big speech in the middle of the movie, probably one of the better scenes in the movie that doesn't have zombies in it, uh, where a guy's like, who's going to read all this? Who cares? You know, civilization is basically <laughs> over. So I hope that we can survive a zombie apocalypse or climate change so we can all watch some of uh, Miss Stokes' things from the 1980s. Yeah. The documentary is actually really good. I, sh I should have written the name of it. It's called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. And it came out in 2019. I got it on Apple and, and watched it. And they have a bunch of the clips and they do really great interviews with both her ex-husband and uh, her kids and stepkids, as well as the people who were caretakers for her. So the guy who changed the tapes out was, um, I think he was a family friend, but then he ended up being kind of a longtime assistant. His name is Frank. Um, and the woman who was kind of her primary caregiver it, it was, it's a good, I, I would say it's a really good documentary. I think it's worth checking out if you're interested in kind of like the overarching story of her, her life. Because to archive all of the news 24 hours a day for 35 years is like, nobody does projects like that anymore. I don't I think. mean, the, the TV networks didn't do it for themselves. No. They don't, they're not going to store all that stuff. Not back then. Not when they had to do all this, you know, manual transfer and all that stuff. So anyway. Yeah. 
Well, that's a fascinating story, Sarah. I think yeah. uh, I think you found a real gem there uh, with that one. Um, I feel like I've I've just learned that there's somebody out there who's more obsessed with stuff than I've ever really than known. I've ever been in my life. Like I think I'm obsessed about something, but that is next level. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's, that's a commitment. Yeah, for sure. That is a commitment. Well, thank you, uh, Darren, for being here with me to hear about Marion. She's kind of a crazy broad, but I love her all the same, like I do the rest of the broads. You know what? Uh, a little bit of madness can actually make an exceptional person. To learn more about Marion Stokes, see pictures of her and of her incredible archives, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page to read more about Darren and myself. Our bios, pics, links to all our cool stuff is all right there. Are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family, or better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if Marion Stokes' story really piques your interest, you might be interested in hearing about some of our other eccentric millionaire broads, including Sarah Winchester, who built the rather insane Winchester Mystery House, and Madam C.J. Walker, who was not actually insane. She was just the first black millionaire in the United States and entirely self-made. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.